Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Succession. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Sonia Soraya. Uh, we're here today to talk about episode four of Succession season three, Lion in the Meadow. Uh, but before we do that, Sonia, we have to do some housekeeping, some mea culpa-ing. Some mea culpa-ing. Um, <laughs> we, we have a lot. Fortunately, we've caught up to where everyone else is in terms of watching the show. Um, but that means that we got, <laughs> we had about 20 people at least tell us that we, the person that we did not recognize last episode was Colin, the security guy played by, what's his name? Scott Nicholson, um, who's been a security guy for Logan throughout the show, but maybe most importantly was one of the fixers present, kind of the key fixer present for um when uh the season one finale when uh kendall killed that guy remember when that happened <laughs> yeah yeah my my like high-minded defense of why at least i forgot colin it, it, particularly his central role in um the show earlier in its run is that the further we get from that incident with the car the more it starts to seem a little bit like landry and tyra killing someone in friday night light <laughs> season two <laughs> Where even for a very over-the-top show like this, that moment is a bit too dire, perhaps. And so maybe I sort of selectively edited it out of my... I mean, I remembered that the incident happened, but I didn't remember the players involved, uh, Colin Chief among them. Um, I guess this moment in season, episode three, when Colin says, I know you, is meant to not let us forget that. 
Um, but I don't know, maybe in the texture of the show, it's better to forget. <laughs> we we forgot it regardless. I mean, and, and it does seem often that Kendall has excised that from his brain, um, which I think is it's another interesting callback to that moment. My my excuse, if there is an excuse when when we have watched uh, rewatch that season, I find that episode really hard to watch, uh, just like watching Kendall's whole thing like collapse. So I watched it with my, you know, my hands over my face um, and I didn't recognize him. Um, we, we have a lot to talk about this episode because we want to do some of your mailbag and we have two interviews, um, on this episode. Um, and fortunately this episode's, um, not nearly as climactic as last week. So we have, we definitely have things to talk about with the lion in the meadow, which must be a reference to lion in winter. Um, and we can, we can talk about that too. But fortunately, well, the, the main thing that really happens here is that there's this big build up to finally Kendall and Logan together, um, who will get a kiss from Daddy Roy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so let's, uh, let's take a look at mailbag while we still, uh, before we get started, started. Um, so in addition to like our 45 messages about Colin, um, I uh, one of our interesting questions from listener Lara was about um Shiv's characterization and her wardrobe this season. Um and I actually read an interesting article on this. Um it was written before season 3. I'm sorry, written before episode 3 about Shiv and how her characterization seems to be sort of limited. Um that was by Lily Lufero and Slate, I think. Um and yeah, I was I was kind of interested in bringing that up because I think this is an interesting episode to talk about Shiv's characterization too, but she's definitely in new territory. Um, and I think her wardrobe has changed throughout the season. I mean, throughout the show, starting from like kind of like a more bo- boho chic, uh, you know, like kind of big cable knit sweaters. Uh, now she's like full full corporate, like in shades of taupe. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yes, she she's gotten a bit more serious. Although we see some of that put up you know the, the the seriousness that she's kind of put on herself has, has not been greeted that well by <laughs> the staff at waystar royco no no for sure it seems a little bit like a costume right now too um and and it does seem you know our, our reader lara uh our listener lara said it seems very matronly for her age and level of sophistication i think that's true it sort of seems like she's playing a grown-up um and i think there's like a purposeful note being struck there um so we'll we'll talk about Shiv more, but I thought that was an interesting comment. Is she dressing like Jerry a little bit? <laughs> like is that <laughs> her style influence? Oh, or, that's an interesting um, thought. But Shiv wears pants more than Jerry does because I feel yeah. like I see Jerry in the pencil skirt quite a bit. Um, and I haven't seen Shiv do the skirt. Um, I've seen her do pant a lot of pants with the blazer, but no interesting colors. No, like like everything sort of blends into the scenery. A voice star would go. Okay, another question. This is from Dylan. He, he and his friends have been batting around the uh, the question of how long do we think has passed in the Succession universe since the pilot? Um, to him, it feels like less than a year, but others, his his friends say he's crazy. Um, what do you think about that, Richard? You know, it's uh, something embarrassing to say as someone who does par- partly for his work a podcast about like closely watching TV shows, but <laughs> I don't tend to think in those terms. Mm-hmm. I-, I-, I would guess a few years, you know. I think it's relevant just because li- like the health scare is the beginning of the-, the show, right? Logan has this health scare. And you if you're 
you know, how much time does he have is like a real question and one that this episode sort of tweaks. Like, how long has it been since this, like, coma that that was debilitating for him? You know, has he really recovered from that? Um, and, and also, like, other things, too. Like, how long has it been since Kendall killed someone? I think there's kind of, you know, it, it would feel a little different if it was, like, six months ago versus two years ago. I can see how that's an interesting question, at least. I, I'm seeing something on Reddit that says that each season, well, one and two, at least, were five months each. So it's, like early fall to march and then season two is march to july oh interesting. Uh, so that's a little bit less than five but um i yeah so i so i guess if that's t- true then we've picked up but we're now kind of in autumn as we see right uh on the on this island right um but you know i, I mean I, I guess it's been a year and change maybe uh which is a lot to happen in that amount of time <laughs> a lot's happened well they're very busy and important but yeah that 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 sounds right to me too um it seems a little bit compressed and they're definitely they're definitely using dramatic license for some of what they're up to but at least they don't have the problem that a lot of other shows have had where they're they have young actors that are growing rapidly <laughs> as as they try yeah. to do not a game of thrones problem at least in this no. case Let's do one more question. This is from Jacob Janay. And they they wanted to know if we've noticed that season three has kind of mirrored season one in um, how the the seasons sort of played out. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Like episode two of each of season three and season one are sort of like relatively contained and sort of play like like sort of like the bottle episode energy that we were talking about. Um, I have not specifically noticed that, and it's hard to say right now because we don't know what the rest of season three looks like yet. Um, but it kind of doesn't surprise me because I think that some of the things that we're talking about in this season are going back to things that happened in season one, like Logan's illness, like Kendall killing this guy. Um, so I, I know I can see that anyway. Yeah, I mean, this is a show that doesn't want to forget its lore, you know, even if sometimes its viewers. <laughs> forget who Colin is. <laughs> I love the I love the concept of succession lore. Um <laughs> all right. So thank you guys for texting us. Text us text us more. Text us more things. Uh Richard's gonna tell you the phone number. What is the phone number? <laughs> well to sign up for subtext, which is the texting service we use for this uh podcast, um you can go to join subtext.com slash still watching or you can text two one three six five two six seven one seven. It'll sign you up. It's free. We won't be spamming you, don't worry. Um, you can also email us the you know traditional way at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I fully considered sending a text to everyone who subscribed being like, we are so sorry we did not recognize Colin. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, maybe that's not the most uh, useful method for, for that, disseminating that information. But We're anyway. still watching. We don't get embarrassed. So, yeah. <laughs> We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who only eat buttered pasta, Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy. 
without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this episode. You know, something we have not mentioned yet, Richard, is that the credits for this for this season, they've expanded them a little bit. There's some more footage in them. And um, the reason I bring that up now is because something that struck me about this episode, which is very much like after a lot of big events have happened, it sort of feels to me like, you know, we're three seasons into the show. These characters have all been pushed to different places. And I think especially with the Roy kids, we're seeing how they're trying to themselves sort of expand the definition of who they are. And I think it's like the writers, too, trying to give make more space for them to to be dramatic. in. so I found that, like, in this episode, all of the kids sort of seem to be flexing their muscles. There's like a lot of tentative energy. People are like stretching into their new roles. I was curious if you felt the same way. Yeah, no, I, I, this season does seem to be a a pivot point, a hinge point for their self-conception, you know, as they grapple with how the public perceives them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think that in this episode, which does so gruesomely, in a sense, deal with aging mm-hmm. and the failing of the body, mm. I do think you have to consider, like, they talk about Kendall turning 40, um... Tom is considering prison time, uh, you know, Connor still beaten away at this president thing. Like these people are all thinking about like the rest of their lives as they get a little bit older. These are not the precocious young, mm. um, you know, heirs apparent that they were in season one, even though the time, yes, the time frame is pretty condensed. Mm. Um, but I, I just think there's a lot of sort of existential, they wouldn't call it that, but existential questioning about their place, not just in the family, but in the world, maybe. Um, which, you know, is something that people start to think about as they age. For sure. For sure. And let's uh, let's talk about Shiv and Tom just to start with, because they kind of their their thing is a little isolated from the other characters, from the other Roy's, at least. And um, it's a really interesting episode for both of them, you know, to go back to our question about Shiv's wardrobe and just in general, like, who is this person and, and who has she become in this role? Here's an episode where she is given a task, like very a very specific task. So it's not something vague like put a new face in the company. At the very beginning, Logan's complaining to her about Mark Ravenhead, who is a character he's seen before. He's kind of like a Tucker Carlson character um, on the network ATN. And because I looked up every actor because I felt so bad about Colin, um, I can tell you he's played by Zach Robitas. Um, uh, that's Mark Ravenhead. So... I was sort of proud of Shiv for accomplishing literally anything um, in in terms of like she had a goal. She goes and tries to do this goal and ends up directly, you know, goes through a bunch of people, but that ends up directly talking to Bravenhead and kind of gives him, you know, his marching orders, which he doesn't like, but she does it anyway. Um, but of course, throughout the whole process, she's just so gross, just like the slimiest possible version of herself, it seems. It is editorial. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there was something kind of sinister also about Shiv being gross, but then the sort of outer layer of what that grossness was in the utility of, which is at the end of the episode when Logan is on the phone with a very irate president, mm. it kind of all makes it seem as if the bumbling and the enraging the on-air talent and all that was the point. So it would get to the president quicker mm-hmm. versus them making a gra- more gradual editorial um, shift, you know? So it, it did feel a little bit like Shiv was being utilized in a way that she was not aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have this phone call between Shiv and her father where he says, you know, basically Carl doesn't like how what you're what you've been doing. You know, we've got to kind of pull the reins in on you a little bit. And she says, well, there's a line. He says, there's no line. Everything everywhere is moving always. Um, hmm. And so she's not really aware of all the pieces moving and that she's a part of this still a part of the Lopenroy machine, even as she tries to assert herself outside of it. Yeah, she's she's so into being his best boy. I mean, which, and I, and I use these sort of terms because that's very present, the sort of like, who is the good child in this episode. And Shiv has not seemed aware of how Logan's manipulating her and uh, is really happy to kind of like, not just do his bidding, but also do his bidding in a way he would approve of like uh he, she busts their balls you know not to which it like ge- the gender grossness of that is is inserted on purpose like that's that's what he would be impressed with i think in her mind and you know in order to get to atn and start muscling her way through that she has to start by muscling past her husband and tom let's just say is not doing well <laughs> in this episode um he's really just is he's just having a meltdown he's starting to doubt his commitment to sparkle motion you know? <laughs> he's like what am i what have i just done and he of course spins it in this particularly Wamsgamsian way about cold wine after work and toilet wine and burping the bag and during the fermentation process and all this stuff. But what he's really saying is the things that I enjoy about my life are in fact very fragile and pathetically small. But even though that the loss of those small things would be a complete disaster, because what else do I really have? You know, um, Tom is already sort of in a, prison of a sense i mean not not literal one but i i I don't know it's an interesting little pivot or turn or maybe not even that little that that tom makes in this episode where you kind of wonder if you've been looking for apostates or potential apostates and it seems that kendall has kind of taken that mantle but then maybe there's some receding on that front in this episode maybe tom is the one Mm-hmm. who leaves or, or or otherwise defies the family in some way because he's realized how much of himself uh, he's given to the family and the company um, and has just become the wrangler of minions uh, or whatever he calls it. <laughs> Eater of shit. He really, uh, he has no illusions about how they see him. But I think, I mean, I think not to not to be too focused on, on the sort of heteronormative framework of of his marriage but i do think that a big part of what's happening with tom is not just prison but also that or the specter of prison but also that his wife is like barely able to see him in his in 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 what is like really he's having his like dark night of the soul here um he's so i mean he tells her he's terrified uh at the close to the end of the episode um and that whole scene i mean 
I, you know, you can you can literally loathe Tom and like watching that scene feel so bad for him because she can't even or won't even hold his hand when he's saying this like incredibly harrowing thing about how afraid he is. I <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't I, I do. I imagine that their marriage and like the story of their marriage uh, is only going to get worse from here. Um, but I think. I, I found myself wondering, like, what does Shiv even think? <laughs> what does Shiv even think is happening? Like, I, I, I almost feel like she, maybe because she has been put into this role where she's the uh, president or whatever, that she's she's his boss and she sort of sees to see it as a as a familial relationship. Yeah, and there's also maybe on her part this. I mean, she's always viewed Tom a bit a bit pathetically, you mm. know, but now that he's really you know just bared his throat for logan whoever else needs it and he's like i'll go to prison whatever that seemed sort of shrewd at the time in 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 that shiv went along with the idea but now she's like well i'm tethered to this weak Mm. spiraling guy you know and yes it was important that he get greg um under the company council but and which he accomplished it seems but that's sort of minor, as Greg, uh, as Tom puts it. He's just getting this minion who just happens to have a little leverage back into the fold. And that's not that stunning an accomplishment. And then the rest of him just seems sort of pathetic. And he gets yelled at by news hosts. And, you know, that Shiv has to go kind of try to clean up in her somewhat clumsy way. Mm-hmm. That I don't know. I just wonder if Shiv is maybe once again reassessing how valuable Tom is as uh, her right-hand person, her vizier her you know lackey so i went uh i went deep on one thing that tom uh said um which is uh in this very bizarre scene with greg um he brings up the story of nero the emperor the roman emperor nero and um a slave boy named sporus um uh because he read a bought a book about the roman emperors to read in prison i'm good for him I I had I I have like so many thoughts about this story. I feel certain also we're gonna have like a classicist in like listening who's gonna weigh in on this too. Um, I hope so. I, I could wait. Right, we can only hope so. Um, but I I read a little bit about this. Um, because I just thought it was such a incredibly charged and awful story to bring for that that's lodged into his brain, and I didn't even feel like. I wasn't even fully sure why they introduced it, right? So the so the story of of Sporus. Sporus was a uh, a, a child, a uh, a slave child who looked like the uh, previous wife of Nero that he had kicked to death um, while pregnant. Um, so Nero uh, has this boy castrated, and then. Force forces him. I mean, dictates that he that that this boy Sporus dress as as his dead wife, um, and and fulfills even some sort of public role as the as Nero's wife, even though Nero actually remarries another woman at the, like at the same time. Um, so it's this sort of like horrible thing that he does to this person uh and sporus by the way <laughs> literally is just um it just means spunk like it's not an it's not actually this person's name it's the name that nero gave to this 
again, literal child. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, Richard, what did you think about, about why this story and, and why it's on Tom's mind? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I was unfamiliar with this IP, so I, <laughs> thank you for the explanation to uh, quote Greg. Um, yeah, I mean, these guys are, these people are so obsessed with power and with, you know, old notions of it, current notions of it, um, in the same way that you see people with random Twitter names and their photo is some Roman statue or bust or something, and they're always talking about, well, in Cato's day, this was how, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of antiquated idea of what an empire was, you know, and how it functioned. And I think that Tom, reading into some of the sordid horrors of that time, you know, mm -hmm. Nero was known to be, you know, the fiddler while Rome burned. So he wasn't, he's not exactly revered by history, but I don't know. I think there was just something squalid about and, and, and maybe metaphorical about Tom finding this incredibly dark, perverse story within, you know, however apocryphal it is, like within history, uh, to sort of, He's telling Greg that that who that's who Greg would become. I think right. But a very he's also weird sort dimension. of talking to himself oddly. Mm. You mm. know, uh, so I think it's just another one of these confused um, allusions to 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 grandeur that um, a lot of people in this family's orbit have. Right. Well, the uh, there definitely is this obsession with not just power and what it how you have to use people to maintain power or or maybe just the entitlement that power has to use to use people um and then with the with this with this particular story it's this horrible thing of taking this child and putting him into this role but because the role is sort of like an elevated a privileged role i mean like this person got to dress and live as an empress um it's both that someone's being taken advantage of, but is also elevated, which I think is something that, uh, it, it, which which I think resonates for a lot of characters in this show. I, I think about it working with the the all of the Roy children in particular, but then Tom too. You know, he's he has enormous privileges, but he is also being used, and I think the very like physically brutal uh, castration. Uh, and rape that are built into this story um, are 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 haunting him. Like the the violence that that this power and this privilege uh, that underpin this this privilege um, are like becoming clear to him. You know, as he is like getting closer to um, to maybe getting some accountability of some kind. Oh, I don't know. It's it's a very it's a very intense story. I'm interested to learn about like who the classicist in the succession writers room is too. Um, but I thought it was a really interesting thing to introduce, and I wonder if we're going to hear more about it. Um, oh, but by the way, it's uh, it's like very this person's pretty well documented. So so that's like the other thing too is it's a uh, the Romans were nuts, and it's just wild to imagine it, people in like the medieval era reading like, oh, okay, so he did this, <laughs> the emperor did this to this person, and trying to make sense of it. Um, barely makes sense now. Yeah, I hope we can get some more. Uh horrifying and you know allusions to antiquity from tom <laughs> because there's a lot there's a lot a lot a lot uh in that history um you know and and i think 
whereas where where it stands from from Greg's perspective, you know, he has this whole in this conversation. He's like, well, I th- I thought I could become oper- head of operations for I, I think theme parks are are the, are the way to go. Experience. He says something like experience economy. I think is what it, he calls it. Uh, is the way to go, and 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 Tom's like, oh, you so you've gamed this all out, and I, I I do wonder if that is a genuine thing on Greg's part. I think it might be. I think Greg literally just wants to like go run Disney World, <laughs> or or what do they call it? Um, Bright Star Buffalo. <laughs> so some fabulous theme park in Buffalo. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, like so. Let's move to Greg because um, he he spends this episode um, being being courted, uh, being wooed by Waystar Royco. Um, I increasingly I feel like I if if I were in a situation where I was like holding a corporation hostage, I would probably be behaving the way that Greg does too, where he's like so apologetic and like ass backwards but he's also like kind of politely screwing everyone over um and asking for like these big privileges and stuff um i really thought that him and tom in that scene in greg's office both of those actors are just uh there's something so deeply tragic and also very funny about about their conversation about i'm going to prison and greg's big game for the future that ends with Tom saying that he would castrate and marry Greg any time. Yeah. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> it's it's sort of it's sort of sweet. Well, we um we got the chance to talk to Nicholas Braun this week, but both Richard and I couldn't do it. But fortunately, two of our coworkers got so excited about the possibility that we decided to let them take the reins. Um, so coming up now, our executive editor, Claire Howarth, and the Hive executive editor, Miriam Elder, who's a politics reporter, um, are talking to Cousin Greg about this episode and his character in general. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> We are going to start with a real blunt fun one, which is Greg the Egg, the vibrator, um, <laughs> a vibrator that not only vibrates, but collaborates with Bluetooth. So it um, works every time you're in a scene. Have you heard of it? And <laughs> What are your thoughts and feelings? Oh, my God. So I don't I I wish I didn't know about this. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Someone sent it to me yesterday. Um, what can I say about this? I think, uh, is it a compliment? Is it Seems honor? like it. Yeah. Um, 
that's like such an intimate thing to do with yourself um, or with another person participating or watching. Um, so the fact that, you know, succession and Greg can be on their mind as that's going on. Um, it's not something any of us expected. Uh, so I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it totally I seems know. like a compliment to me. It's a, it's a so. comment on the so. success of the show. Yes. And of, of you specifically. Yeah. 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 I'm trying to think like if there was like a Logan based vibrator stimulator, it's a whole different thing. Um, that's kink. So, yeah. 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 Thank you to whoever invented this. <laughs> um, I don't know what it looks like, but uh, maybe I don't want to. I don't Yeah. We'll look into it. I think Greg is the only character who could, who could pull off having a vibrator uh, named after him. So congratulations. <laughs> but um, so your character, especially this season, seems to be, despite all the bumbling, the most deft at actually navigating um, a lot of the power centers in the show. And the question that I have is, like, what, what do you feel that Greg actually wants? Like, does he want power for power's sake? Or what is he trying to achieve? Um, and for what purposes? Well, I think you're either born with um, an ambition and to make a lot of money or not. I, I just personally think that's in, like an instinct that's born in people or, or it isn't. Um, and people eventually drift towards what they want. And so I think anyone who's ended up in a circle like this is there because there's something compelling them towards it. And yeah, maybe it is, maybe it's money for Greg. Um, you know, he has been on the side of Ewan, which is like the moral side and the like, let's not spend the billions that we have side. And, you know, I, Jesse and I talked about it and, it seemed like um, my mother and I were like rationed money. And so there's something about like going towards the Logan side where they're spending money, they're doing stuff. It's maybe terrible stuff, but um, something is pulling Greg towards that. Um, and, uh, and it's maybe all the stuff that he hasn't been getting his whole life. Um, but yeah, just to say, I think I think the you know people who end up in like high political circles um, and corrupt families and people who are of like huge influence, they end up they end up there because they want to influence people. They want to make decisions that like a lot of humans will have to be affected by. Um, so as sort of bumbly and yeah, like awkward and not knowing how to operate in these rooms, uh, I think there is a big part of them that just wants to be like powerful maybe or influential or just to matter in the world um, on a big scale. So uh, he's got to fight or cover up all that awkwardness to do it, to get there. Um, speaking of watching Greg um, interact with power and power dynamics, I think Tom and Greg are a favorite of, fa of all-time favorites for, for audience people and uh, sort of the anti-Roman and Jerry. Um, and they have this very physical 
relationship, there was always like Tom's fratty hazing, and then there's the fight me like a chicken scene <laughs> in this season. How? What is the genesis of your physicality? Is it like writer's room, or did you and Matthew McFadden tell tell oh us God, a little right. bit about your physical um, acting? Well, I haven't seen those episodes. So, have you seen up to seven? Only up to four, and this is this is going to air around four. Okay. Um, I forgot about the fight me like a chicken scene. Um, I can't wait to see that. Uh, I don't know where to begin with him because um, he's just the best. He's just the best partner um, to do all this stuff with. You know, yeah, he he and I both, I guess, love the physicality of it. And there's a dominating thing, like when someone like, hits your shoulder hard, you know, or, or in that case tries to wrestle you. Um, there's like an invasive, uh, thing about that. And he's just constantly like poking and prodding Greg and testing him and showing him like, I have control over you and can do whatever I want to your body. Um, so I yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. But, but Matthew and I just, I mean, first of all, we follow the writing. They invent a lot of that stuff. You know, we, we aren't, he's not going to throw water bottles at me unless that's in the script. Um, not improv. That wasn't an improv. Uh, how many he threw might have been uh, up to him. Um, but, you know, so the d- dynamics are set up and then he and I just follow it and try a lot of stuff. And, you know, he's as imposing as he wants to be physically on me why is greg so so um scared of him but not of other roys well other other roys don't threaten him so directly and he's his boss so he interacts with him more um i i mean i i guess he's threatened by logan at times but i think there's also a kinship to the relationship between him and logan um which is maybe inexplicable, which is something that I felt from the beginning that, yeah. So, so it's, he's the most yeah directly um, threatening. It seems like Tom takes out a lot of his own status issues uh, on Greg, but you don't really see Greg doing that to other characters. Like, do you find him to be fundamentally good uh, or moral in his like personal behavior, but also how he approaches um, like the bigger issues, uh, in the show? I think he's, I don't think he's definitely good. Um, maybe he's more good than bad. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, like, I think there's parts of people who are in this world that like is bad. And I guess what's fun to watch about, you know, why people like to watch succession in a way is because, um, there's not like any wokeness to this group. Like they're just like, we're going to do whatever we want in any way without guard, you know, like without like any um, restrictions to ourselves, which makes us as mean as possible, um, selfish, greedy, uh, whatever. So I think that's also kind of appetizing for, for someone and, and for Greg, but yeah, I think he has a moral compass that's stronger than any of them. 
because he wasn't raised in this world. So most people who aren't raised in a world like this are, are decent people who know what's right and wrong, but I think they've all been desensitized to, to that, you know, scale. I mean, I've always thought of uh, Greg as like, he's the character that we're meant to um, like as just a regular audience viewer, like meant to align with because the rest of them are just so distant and it's just a world we can never inhabit. Is that something that you think about as you approach the role? And like, is there a certain responsibility to, to having that role? I don't think I think about that too much. That is like the nature of that part. And I think Jesse's spoken about it and, and yeah, I think that that is what it is, but I don't think it affects the way I work just, you know, I do what the scene requires and what I think is how Greg would experience any of this stuff, which to me is because he hasn't been, you know, wasn't raised in this world that everything's kind of enjoyable the first time it happens. There's a thrill to it that maybe by season three, he's covering up some more. But I think, yeah, that that that, that is what's fun. Like, you know, about the big wedding in season one or, um, you know, being on a private jet or any of these things. Like it's, I think I can enjoy it in a way that nobody else would or like, they're just, they're, it's just another thing. Like a private jet could be just another car or something. So it's like, so it's, it's nice to be that contrast in, in these rooms. Greg is kind of, um, he strikes me, and I think other probably Miriam too, as a sort of lonely fellow. You don't see a lot of friends or romance. Um, do you find him lonely? And um, who who do you who is his closest friend? Even in a place where nobody has friends, I think he is lonely because I think he's got to bottle a lot of stuff up. Like he doesn't have anyone to express all this to. Like, even when he tries to with Tom, he's like, you know, I, this is against my values. He's like, you don't have values. You don't have morals, Greg. Um, so it's like anytime he would want to, you know, express a real feeling, it's sort of, he's got to shut it down. Um, I, I mean, yeah, Jesse and I have talked about him having some friends from work, but you never see him with them. But I think the world is lonely. Like, I, you know, this, everyone here is lonely in a way um, because they're, they're kind of cold and they don't ever get to reveal like their full truth to someone. It's like always would comes along with a strategy. So they can't, I guess. So his best friend, uh, I think he's got a really good relationship with Kendall uh, up to a point in the season where things start to turn, but probably, the most complex, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, I, yeah, I guess, I mean, Tom and him just have, once you like get into fights with someone, you break down a lot of stuff. Like you get to know each other very quickly. So, um, you know, after someone throws water bottles at you or yeah, like you're, yeah, we've had plenty of battles, you know, him calling me pig man and stuff like that. Uh, I think that you can't get much closer after you have some of that happening. True. Well, 
one of my favorite lines probably of the of the whole show came um, in in episode four where Tom is like, "I'd castrate and marry you." I mean, it was just absolutely, absolutely epic. Wait, what scene was that? You guys are in your new kind of crummy office. You've detailed your plan for wanting to run uh, an amusement park. And he's telling you the story of Nero. Um, oh, in this season. And yes, and pushing, pushing his wife down the stairs. That's right. That's right. I'd castrate you and marry you. That's one for all time. I love that scene so much. I can't wait to see it. Do you read the script well? Do you read it well in advance, like the full season before you go forth? No. No, 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 no. I mean, I, any of us could ask Jesse, like, where do you think this season's going? And, and he'd have a, like an 80% answer of, of what that is. But things can change and things can get cut or things, you know, based on how well you interact with a new character he can shift stuff they're all willing to like follow the best thread of any of these characters so yeah so i don't ask and i just wait for the next one and then read it and matthew and i text on the side like oh my god we get to do this and then me and jeremy like oh man this is good stuff can't wait for this and so um yeah that's it yeah i I, I like the surprise of it i mean you know once we when we get a script, it's like us watching the episode for the first time. It's exciting. My question was going to be how you watch the show. Like, there's obviously a huge fandom online. Do you, like, stalk us all on Twitter about how we're all going crazy over it? Do you have a party? Do you watch it in, like, a silent room? What's your experience like? I I got the first two, like, a link to the first two, and I was like, okay, who should I watch this with? But then I thought, like, what if I hate my work or something, like... So I watched it on my laptop by myself, which made sense. But also I'm like, oh, I can't share this with anybody. I sh-. So I think when, once it's on air, I'll probably try and watch it with some people. It is hard to watch because, you know, I care so much about it. I want it all to be good. So if I'm like, oh, that line, there was a better take. It's frustrating. Well, it's great. It's great. Especially the rum and, the rum and coke. Yes. <laughs> Wonderfully done. Good, good, good. Oh, that was... Was it real? That was an important one. (laughs) You did like the Trumpy drinking with both hands kind of thing. You know, it was, it was, it was great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If your hand's shaking, you got to stabilize. So, uh, speaking of Twitter, well, it seems kind of like Kindle's determined to have fun with wokeness and, and Twitter wars, um, this season for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He wants his tweets to be, done by the bojack horseman writers Uh. here's another quick one for you so we know that like some of the uh murdochs have watched the show or one of them says that he didn't but um have you ever met any of them in real life no no never met any murdoch no i don't think about them that much like you know people like to draw the comparisons yeah i don't know one time like early on i just searched I searched them a lot because I was trying to find, like, who's the person in the back of their picture? Like, when paparazzi capture them, is there, like, kind of, like, a weird person, um, the Greg of the Murdochs? And I saw some guy a few times uh, that was like, oh, yeah, there, there is one. There's the guy. Um, but that's the only time I really searched him. Can we ask one more question that's, like, a broad Nick Braun question? It's just... 
we're very excited about your other roles and we want to know um, what Cousin Greg qualities might appear in Cat Person and or Adam Newman. I just don't think about it like that. <clears throat> I, I don't really know. I've started Cat Person here a few days ago and he's just a really different energy than Greg and I'm like actively trying to make him a very specific and, and different thing. I mean, I'm, I just do what I think it requires. I think people like drew comparisons between Derek and Zola that I don't know if you saw Zola, but that's just because there's yeah also like a loneliness and earnestness and he's the outlier of this like kind of um, advantageous or whatever you want to call them, that group. So, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm not thinking about it that way. Well, we're excited to see you in all the things and we're really excited about the new season. Thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm excited too. It's going to be so fun to get this in front of people and, and for me to remember what the hell we did. Um, (laughs) And eventually watch it maybe. Yeah. 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 It was such a crazy season. It was, yeah, you know, to take place amongst what's happening in the world. So sometimes it was like, are we definitely making the show? Um, But Apparently they rolled, they rolled on it. They rolled film. So. So now let's talk a little bit about what Roman's up to in this episode. What, you know, he, he and Jerry are, are both like very much in cahoots throughout this whole episode. And I felt I have to, there's a the conference call at the very beginning of the episode where, um, where the whole Waystar Royco team, like the executive board calls Kendall um, Jerry is doing like the conference call, like she's managing the conference call. And that to me, that hit me like a dagger to the heart. I just felt it was such a great, exp- like such a great uh, encapsulation of how she has this role of being in charge, but everyone has sidelined her to essentially an administrative, in an administrative capacity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's still, you know, the sense, oh, well, I'm, but I'm leading the meeting. And, yeah, but you shouldn't be the one connecting everyone on the fo- on the stupid conference call phone. You know? Right. So she and so she and Roman. I mean, and and she she's very clearly communicating to him early in the episode that she's like she needs him to grow up. She needs him to be a little bit more than the guy that he's he's been for a while. So so the thing that Roman's doing in this episode is trying to get Oppo research on Kendall, which is sort of a it's just sort of a funny thing to do in general, but that's this the way this family works. And and it requires kind of a, a very cor- it's a very corporate set of transactions. It requires kind of finding this person, putting them in a room, and trying to strike some kind of deal to get some dirt on Kendall. Um there's not a lot. I mean, it's 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 awful and it's uh, su- somewhat successful um, because he's able to get these photos um, and he's so proud of himself and he brings them back to Jerry and Jerry's so proud of him. And I thought it was very cute. And as I said, they are my one true pairing. So I felt very my heart felt a little warm about that. Um, but I guess mostly what this made me think is if Roman's actively looking for dirt on Kendall how much longer is it going to be before he finds out that Kendall literally killed someone? Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty tightly held secret because it would have so many implications for so many people um, that I wonder. But again, 
with our good friend Colin. <laughs> it has been referenced this season, so maybe there is a reason for that. Um, yeah, I thought this was a... Uh, this is one of those plot lines on this show that don't happen very often, where I did feel it was a little bit too outsized, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, bringing in this formerly unhoused person who they had drunkenly convinced to get Kendall's t- initials tattooed on his forehead, and now he seems to have kind of gotten his life together he's with counsel you know he's sort of put off by the any idea of getting the photos out but then of course roman throws this huge sum of money at him and it seems he agreed and and it, it it's a little outsized but there are you know I, I guess it is instructive once in a while to have people completely from the outside you know so <laughs> for, not not peers in the you know uh mega corporation business but regular people who you see crushed under the weight of or manipulated by this family this company um and yes maybe they stand to gain something here and there but uh i i think it's a it's a pretty interesting um manifestation i guess of the immorality that we we know is implied all the time with this company but we don't necessarily see the direct effects of it often we haven't seen many or any if i remember correctly of the the people in, implicated or, or, or the people victimized by this cruise ship scandal, you know. Right. So here you have this one isolated incident where something bad happened in their youth. And then Jerry has to remind Roman, but you're in that story too. <laughs> so maybe this is just better left completely uh, unsaid. Yeah. Uh, she says, you have to always be asking yourself, how does this advance my personal position? A very, a very cute little line that kind of masks this incredibly awful thing that has happened, which is not just, you know, not just Kendall and Roman and this guy getting this thing tattooed on his forehead, but then also going and getting him and dragging him back through it again. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know if there's uh, if there's more to say about it, but I, I just want to add that <laughs> Roman's line reading at the very end of the episode where... He says because <laughs> that everything is about to fall apart because you wouldn't give our dad a timely fucking Evian good day. <laughs> he's he's just very good at that. Um, a quick quick note about Connor. He he's in this episode very briefly. Uh, I I liked the one thing he did in this episode, which was unlike the other kids, he's. He's saying, oh, I know exactly who my father is. I know exactly what this company is capable of. And I want I want either either you guys give me something or I'm going to start talking, Um, which is kind of interesting. It's it's a lot less self-delusional than I think the other um, than the other kids are. Yeah, this this scene is interesting uh, in in a lot of ways. But one that really jumped out to me because it recurs twice more in this episode is this very blunt and straightforward vocalization of among logan roy's many flaws his very loud bellicose racism (laughs) yes which i felt i feel like the show doesn't tangle directly with all that often of course there is always the implication of especially with this news network and the makeup of the company certainly and the company he keeps otherwise there is a racism built into that portrait, absolutely. But this episode takes pains three times to reiterate in, in, in no uncertain terms that this is a major part of his whole deal, you know? Yes. And 
Yeah. That I found notable, I guess. I don't know if notable in a good way, a bad way, like in terms of the character, the, the portrait of this character, but um, it certainly was there with intention. Yeah. Yeah. And you do sort of get the sense that like things cleaned up very recently at Waste Hard Boyko. Like people started not saying certain things very recently, maybe within the last couple of years as a or after the Obama election. They were like, oh yeah, we gotta stop saying this around the office. Okay. So now let's talk about the big the big set piece of the show, which um it's it's Logan, it's Kendall, and it's Josh Aronson, played by Adrian Brody, who is another member of the board who Start kicks off all the drama in this episode by saying that he is not confident in the direction of the company with the family in charge. So I, it starts at this conference call, which we mentioned before. Um, I just wanted to talk about it for a second because, one, I think Kendall handled the conference call pretty well, all things considered, given that it's kind of an ambush. Um, we see more shots of him in his tower that's at the, his condo that's at the top up there. So I like that. Mm-hmm. And then Logan calls him Cub, <laughs> literally shouts it, maybe a little too on the nose, but lion in the meadow, uh, the cubs all fighting for power, kind of an interesting thing. There's a lot of animal references throughout this whole scene. Yeah, lion in the meadow, I looked it up, is also a 1969 children's book. Maybe it's a rep by Margaret Mahey that um, is about a little boy who sees a lion in the meadow outside his house. His mother doesn't believe him, but then it turns out to be true and the lion can talk, apparently. Um, so I don't know if that has direct, there are direct lines to be drawn between that, uh, book and, and this episode, but, um, you know, just in case if anyone's typing out an angry email <laughs> right now, I do recognize that it was a children's book. There's also the line of winter, you know, illusion perhaps, and maybe another reference that we are missing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe another reference we're missing. Um, yeah, I, um, yeah, the other ones that I noticed, the animal references, is at some point, uh, I think Kendall refers to Logan as a silverback, and then yeah. says, and then says to to Aronson, "Oh, he's a bear." <laughs> well, it's which like, is it? No, no, what animal is he? Why can't we just be people? They should have thrown thrown shark in there, just you know. So the whole scene, I mean, we can kind of just walk through it a little bit because there's a bunch of stuff that happens, but it's really just this extremely for for us as the viewers. This extremely heightened reunion between father and son, uh, abuser and abusee. Um, and uh, what's really funny is that it's very intimate and intense and revealing. And the whole time you kind of can't figure out Aronson's motives or like what exactly he's trying to accomplish. And then at the end, you learn that whatever it is that Kendall and Logan tried to convey throughout this entire episode, this whole scene it was incredibly fucking unimpressive because it doesn't look like a good investment and uh it's a huge failure yeah i mean they have they make little inroads and then they lose ground again and then really lose it by the end um you know i think that that line at the very end once logan has sort of collapsed and uh josh has called for help and kendall steps forward and starts to get back into the negotiation part of it and josh is like why don't why don't you just like focus on your father right now, which right. is the final little coup de gras of this whole thing has been about exposing how pathetic and petty and weak and whatever you guys are um and what Josh's grander motivation for that is uh I don't exactly know, maybe we'll find out, but um 
if you had that much money and a four percent, four point something percent stake in this company, which turns out to be a very valuable chunk of stake, uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be kind of if you were one of these perverse billionaires to invite these guys to your island <laughs> just to <laughs> fuck with them? <laughs> you know, like who gets to do that to Logan Roy? Not very many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he nearly kills him, which I don't think was the, was the plan. But um, yeah, I mean, we were we were talking off air about um, what island this is supposed to be, um, where Josh Aronson has his very modern sleeping with the enemy esque estate, um, and we sort of figured out maybe Fisher's Island in the Long Island Sound, maybe Shelter Island, definitely private versions of those islands. Right. Or something, I think, as you said, Sonia, somewhere between here in New York and Cape Cod-ish. <laughs> right. There's there's a real northeast uh, northeast grassiness to it, but then it's also this big kind of suburban. I mean, compound. Compound is such a ridiculous word to use for someone's home, but it's it's a it's a whole uh, property mansion pool, and and clearly Aronson is not being um, upfront with them because. He says his daughter's sick, and then, like, the first thing you see is the daughter jumping into the pool when you get to the compound. Everything... (sighs) I feel like I should talk a little bit about the build-up, too, to this confrontation. All of the planes and the helicopters, all of this incredibly wasteful private transportation to get to this location. And then they get there, and these two men can't even be in the same room with each other they don't know how to have a conversation with each other and they're trying to sell this this guy played by adrian brody on the future of this company i just felt like it 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 like rips the whole facade open like we're interested in all of these sort of familial dynamics but this is not a situation like this is not a structure that a company can run on like as he says like i can't invest in a blood feud like it's not a it's not a good return on my investment and i thought that was i thought that was like a it was important for the show to emphasize like how dysfunctional this sort of setup is even though at the same time we get these moments where <laughs> logan starts saying these like incredibly like maybe loving things about kendall and maybe he believes them and maybe he doesn't but it still matters that he says them and he can hear how incredible it is to to be acknowledged in that way by his father um well there's this cruel glimmer of what it might have been if it were sincere i mean logan later says that you know you'd say anything to get fucked on a date you know (laughs) um yeah i I think that like this family dysfunction is radioactive and they don't always see it because they're so focused inward um and here comes josh aronson to be like hey you guys look ridiculous and bad (laughs) and dangerous you know, um, and I just needed some proof of that, you know, in in a sense, you know, and they like Logan and Kendall can't even agree on a Beatles metaphor. You know, <laughs> they made some of their best music while they were suing each other. Great band. And then Logan says, good band. <laughs> you know, and this is and, you know, he's sort of siding with Josh in that moment. But then Logan fucks it up later because he makes this, you know, it, anti-semitic remark about bagels and coffee and city boy you know all that kind of coded stuff um and it's just you know it is interesting to see people from well we see the very outside in the case with roman but also here this is you know josh is not he's of this world but he's not of the family of the company he just owns a four percent stake in it and he's just like from my perspective you guys look completely 
ruined no matter what because right. you cannot get it together. I think there are so many things that go wrong in terms of communication, just pure, simple communication in like the last, you know, the last part of them hanging out where like, and I, I really, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to your conversation. So, so the other interview for this episode is Richard's going to talk to uh, Adrian Brody, but he hasn't talked to him yet. So we are a little bit still in the dark about what's going to happen. Um, but I found myself really wondering like how much Aronson was kind of toying with them. Like how much of this was sort of a stress test, like putting them out, um, like, clearly, Logan does not want to go for a walk. He does not want to go hiking to the beach, no matter how beautiful it is. But he literally is unable to say no. He's literally unable to communicate his boundaries, his vulnerability, whatever it is. And Kendall, who does not like his dad and the way his dad handles things, is still unable to do anything except go along with how his dad is presenting things. So they're on the way back from this walk completely lost i mean even this i was like is this some like long game where like aronson's pretending to be lost just so he can see what happens or is he just such of like a you know stubborn man refusing to ask for directions or admit that he's lost that that's how they got into this mess i literally couldn't tell you because i don't know but regardless they handle it so badly like logan should just say he can't do it anymore kendall should just say my dad needs help but they they're unable to communicate in the simplest of terms. I thought that Kendall might say, hey, hey, Josh, I hurt my foot. Can I get the cart? Right. Mm. And sort of save his dad, you know, sort of in, in a reflection of his father monologuing about how much he, his son's a you know good kid and he loves him. That, of course, didn't happen. Um, you know, but I, I think the most interesting, the most fascinating thing about these scenes which another rarity for this show is how much silence there was. I mean, there were these two mm. shots of father and son either sitting inside or sitting outdoors just in a long held silence. And this show never shuts up, you know? Mm. And so mm. that was really striking for how uncommon it is on succession and really it spoke volumes and is the closest I have come maybe on this show, at least recently to feeling a sense of poignancy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. i mean where we hopefully no one listening has been in this exact situation uh if you have please email us. <laughs> um but you know that, that those t- those tensions of yes we have all the simmering anger based on old things based on new things whatever but also at root is i just don't know how to talk to you and you yeah. don't know how to talk to me and that's really hurt that's painful you know that's yeah. sad uh and i think the show was really wise on these two occasions in this episode to shut the hell up Mm. and just let the camera sit there and watch as these two people just are lost in this ocean of stuff between them. Stuff they can't say. Right. Just the, all, all of the stuff they're like unable to communicate. And, and typically I think they would fill that silence with shouting at each other or these power games that they're always playing, but because they have to perform this, this unified front for Aronson there's there's like where there sh- where there could be words of of affection of love of loyalty um of at least being like we want the same things even if you know they they don't they can't even have that they cannot have nice things they just have the silence yes yeah. 
well, should we go to my interview with uh, Adrian Brody? Yeah. Uh, who will explain, not the silence, maybe, but maybe <laughs> what Josh was really up to, at least in his eyes. So, uh, so here's my conversation with the one and only Josh Aronson. Well, I'm so excited now to have on the line uh, the standout star of this episode, I would say, uh, Adrian Brody. Adrian, thanks for talking with us. Hey, thank you, Richard. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So the arrival of Josh Aronson is an interesting one, uh, mostly because we don't really know much about him and his wealth uh, before we end up on this kind of cursed island with him. Um, <laughs> what is your approach to this character? Who do you think he is? You know, it's it's really interesting. When Jesse and the team approached me about this, uh, we had a lot of uh, discussions about character, and um, they had a wonderful character drawn up. But I, uh, in my lifetime, and my um, I have a, a pretty wide array of friends, and uh, I, I I know some people who are I felt had similarities with where they were headed with Josh, and and. Um, you know, so he's kind of an amalgamation of some people that I know and some of our collective imagination. Um, you know, but he's a he's someone with uh, obviously a lot of resources and power, and with that comes a kind of fearlessness and, um, you know. Uh, I think one thing that that he has and a lot of these very uh, omnipotent characters have in common is the ability to uh, smell fear. And uh, I made sure that Josh had a very astute sense of smell. (laughs) (laughs) In your mind, are you playing him as more ethical than logan and kendall and their family how does he how does he fit in the sort of show's moral universe i guess i mean i he's clearly more ethical i mean i think it's not hard to be more ethical (laughs) than those guys um but i don't think that's uh his main motivation um you know i think it's uh it's a it's a power play you know and he um, as is a big uh, stakeholder in in Waystar, and he just um, sees opportunity and sees again, like I said, sees weakness, and is concerned about that and his investments. And um, it's it is business, but there is a wonderful playfulness that I was able to have with it because. Uh, you know, you know the stakes are so high for all the players, and it's it's this, uh, you know, uh, it's. I always envisioned it as <laughs> I jumped in with these sharks, and I always often say it was so great to come play and swim with these sharks. But it really was, you know, I I sw- jumped in to that body of water, and the three of us are sussing each other out, and and that's that's just really delicious stuff to work with as an actor. Yeah, I mean, Jesse Armstrong's writing, or the, the whole writing staff, I mean, it, there's such a, a wonderful patter and rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, did you find as an actor that you could, d- does that level of writing make it easier to deliver? Or is there a challenge faced because it is kind of dense and, uh, you know, so nimble? Oh, no, it is such a gift 
and uh i i complimented uh jesse again last night um i bumped into kieran i, I did the uh the uh tonight show and kieran was there and uh you know i i just feel so fortunate um so much of um uh, being able to be great is having the um creative ensemble that is behind a production uh lift you up and uh of course uh you can have great instincts and and be able to improvise and add uh nuance to things that are a bit flat or dry but it sure helps to have a a a a well balanced diet <laughs> for you to to go out there and dig in so in terms of that digging in um I, like in terms of the kind of nitty gritty of these scenes um with Logan and Kendall how much of a long game do you think Josh is playing i mean you know he couldn't have predicted necessarily that Logan would experience a health crisis while on this long perhaps wayward trek uh to the golf carts um but do you think that, like how much of this was planned by josh like you how, don't think he could i think he well, could. Maybe he I, could, yeah. I i feel i feel like there was quite a long play there and i think again uh he's looking for for clues and and um and weakness and uh it, it's pretty apparent that the the rift um isn't something that's going to mend too well and what are those implications and repercussions and and how does it affect you know his stake and and what are his opportunities to uh to you know either recoup or or uh take advantage of the situation i think in witnessing uh Kendall's I guess apathy or his lack of uh um uh, you know general um care for his father in in certain moments it reveals a lot and i think Josh knows the terrain <laughs> physically and metaphorically and he he knows how to Keep pushing it. I don't think he was. <laughs> I don't think he was necessarily lost. I always try to keep it a bit that uh, he's playing into it. You know, he's not. Um, it's his property. I mean, <laughs> he's yeah. not necessarily lost. I think it was a bit of a show to rile them all up, and you know, uh, yeah. There was almost a sense when he says on on the phone, "I'm not, I'm not lost. You're lost." To the to the people who are driving the carts, if they even are out there <laughs> with their carts, it almost felt as if he was kind of making fun of the traditional Roy family bluster. You know, that's the kind of stuff that they would yell at an at an assistant or something. And, well, and I think that goes in. I mean, I think it's uh, you know these are. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. I definitely I could I could hear any of them saying it, but. Uh, it comes with the territory. I mean, the the poor assistant or executive, uh, you know, lackey that is 
got to answer to, you know, every behest is, is not in a position to really uh, clarify <laughs> who's yeah. really lost. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it just unfortunately comes with the, the, the landscape. There's a, an, a very charged moment when Logan kind of can't help himself but make this dog whistling sort of anti-semitic comment about city boy bagels and coffee kind of thing that that kendall later kind of remarks upon in 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 the way you conceive of josh like does that give him any extra leverage that 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 logan has kind of expressed himself in such a bad and almost antiquated way you know sadly anti-semitism lurks beneath the surface um in in many in many uh civilized places so um i don't feel there is a direct correlation to a moment of uh weakness i think it was a a lack of sensitivity in the moment but reveals a sentiment of the individual and something that is pervasive in society and uh i think it you know it can do it can do several things but i don't think it i don't think it comes as a great surprise yeah uh, i don't feel like i interpreted it as that i think it's something that exists in in uh in all you know there's bigotry and and uh built-in resentments in all levels of society. And uh, that's something we all have to work towards and, and uh, you know, get a grasp of. It feels like a pivotal moment um, for a viewer because if we weren't on Josh's side already, we, we certainly are at that point and beyond, you know. And I think there's also, he's he is humanized in a way by, you know, he kind of makes up this excuse about his daughter being sick, but then we see her, you know, doing somersaults into the pool. And so he is, there's a family, there's a, there's a kindness around him that we, is kind of rare on the show. Is that something that you were kind of trying to convey when you were building the character, that, that he's a little bit more human than the Roys are? I think that's, that's kind of you to say. I mean, I, I didn't necessarily try to give him much um, humanity, um, but I guess with the, the absence of, of, of humanity in so many <laughs> moments that it, it, it might come across that way. I feel like, of course, he's a, a, a family man and loves his children. And, um, and I think this probably was, you know, a level of, sincerity with that um but i i think ultimately and i think he conveys it as well um he didn't really want to fly in and he's in in the position of power and you know he says come see me you don't have to you don't have that meeting you know i think we have to sit down and i think he knows also what what he's saying if he's saying that oh yeah she was terribly sick uh that he over overplayed it and he's revealing that and also gauging their response <laughs> i mean yeah. that's what's so fun about it is that every <laughs> every sentence was an opportunity to really uh stick it to them <laughs> and yeah. these are guys that you don't really get it stuck to too often and it's it was really fun 
Well, that's something I was talking about with my co-host is that, you know, who wouldn't, given the opportunity, take the chance to, like, lay low these two titans of industry? You know, like, it, it's it's a rare opportunity in, in the world of the show that um, someone can loom over Logan Roy the way that Josh does in this episode. Um, it was fun. So, and one of the great aspects of this power play where he makes them come to him is that we get this incredible new setting for the show, this this modernist mansion on, I guess, what's supposed to be a private island. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Where did you film it? We shot out in Montauk. Oh, okay. Yeah, it definitely had that sort of Long Island-y vibe. We, my co-host and I were also trying to figure out, like, all right, is this supposed to be kind of Shelter Island but private or Fisher's Island but private? And, exactly. But well, it's just some yeah, sort of imagined place. Little, yeah, imaginable. Yeah. Yeah. But. yeah. Um, I, another detail I, I love about the character um, is, I don't know, were you privy to the costuming choices in this? Because Josh is wearing about, like, five layers by my count. That was, uh, a lot of that was my doing. Was it? Was it? Yeah. What was the thought process behind that? Kind oh, of what was it? Oh, um, well, um, he's prepared. And um, we initially had some really fun bits about, you know, Josh also had this kind of outdoorsy quality. You know, he's someone that um, was connected more to the environment. And in that sense, there there is a sense of ethics and, a, and a, an understanding that, our world is falling apart right, right before our very eyes. And that's something that I share. And it's something that I try to infuse into the character in just uh, regardless of his affluence, he had a, a, a more earthy sensibility and he forages and he uh, is, is, <clears throat> That's why I say he's not really lost. I mean, he's sensitive to his environment and, um, and uh, he's prepared for inclement weather. If it's hot, you can take off a layer. If it gets cold and you're out for the day, you've got, you've got, uh, you've got armor. I mean, it's, it's just being prepared. And I've spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I know, I know it's necessary to, have layers so i i pitched it and you know and, and the discussions with the costume department and they loved it and they had it and we got some extra stuff we got really cool hiking boots for me and uh, we threw on the ski cap and all of that and i thought you know and that also comes from you know certain people that i that i know as well and they're 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 dialed into to where the world is at yeah. and there filthy rich <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean he, which is which is what you want which is, he, you want the you want the people who can make change and, and have influence to uh uh you know divert some of that attention and resources to to our environment that's ailing yeah he, he's adaptive in, in a way that the roys aren't i mean logan is, certainly isn't kendall is trying to be the hip new cool you know breath of fresh air but he's really not he's so of this kind of stodgy old family and, and that puts well. He's Josh too in... concerned about himself. I right, mean, that, right. It's right. You know, it's like it's a it's a desperate act, which which is tragic and um, and beautiful and entertaining and 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 um, wonderful work on, on on Jeremy's part of portraying that. But Kendall is a is a tragic uh, character with a lot of uh, daddy issues and. 
Josh doesn't have any of that really, or they're not so on the surface if they, if they do exist. Um, and so there's a, there's a, there's a position of strength that, that Josh has that immediately can, you know, undercut that dynamic between the two of them. And, and, uh, just, they're just vastly different human beings. One thing I'm always so curious about watching this show because it's it's populated by so many great actors um, who I I have to believe and I, I have learned in, in conversation with some of them like that their worldviews are, are wildly divergent from the characters they're playing. Um, in, in your case, you know, you speak about concern about certain political things, environment stuff. Um, what do you get, not so much as an actor, but as a person, out of kind of stepping into the head and body of? one of these oligarchic figures. I mean, is there anything instructive that you can take away from it for yourself? Sure. Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. <laughs> and uh, there is um, tremendous uh, freedom in playing someone uh, of that weight. And, um, you know, I'm sure... Um, there's something seductive and addictive in uh, all of, uh, of those aspects of uh, attaining power and money. Um, but at the same time, one thing I've always cherished about acting and putting myself in other people's shoes is that this is not really anybody's life that you really really want to really have i mean everybody has problems everybody no matter uh what they achieve in life has their whole slew of of uh tragedy and obstacles that they have to constantly contend with and um so it's just perspective, you know, it's, it just helps with perspective. You know, if you, if you learn about hunger and, uh, you know, you, 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 you understand what not to take for granted. Um, and if you learn about, you know, having too much, you learn that for those individuals, it's never enough, you know, and that's that's um that's something to apply to your lessons right these are lessons that we can all take from it if you if you encounter enough people that have so much and so much good fortune yet they're still either miserable or have uh the same issues that that uh, you know you would think you might overcome uh then to learn how to find uh peace and, and and equilibrium in other ways yeah yeah and you can have all the money in the world but you're still wheezing and gasping on on a trail <laughs> waiting for a golf cart well, they always say that they, there's that there's that joke what do uh the what do the rich and the poor uh both have in common <laughs> neither have enough money <laughs> yeah that's good that's kind of the and that the, is what and that is like the the dilemma here is that it's just never enough. And then you, you, when do you stop clamoring for more? When do you just kind of be at peace with that and start, you know, figuring out how to be uh, philanthropic or, 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 you know, fix some of the grave uh, wrongs in this world and definitely not contribute to them? 
Well, speaking of clamoring for more, I, I, I know that I share the sentiment with uh, a lot of people that I, I hope we get to see Josh again. Um, I but do too. Thank you. In, in the meantime, uh, Adrian, thank you for bringing us to the island. Uh, it was a harrowing trip, but but well worth it. And uh, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much again. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Still Watching Succession. Uh, thank you for listening. And I'll just reiterate again, email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com to scold us about who else we forgot about or anything <laughs> else. Maybe you don't have to compliment us, but theories, anything. Um, you can also uh, join subtext at joinsubtext.com slash stillwatching or text 213-652-6717. Sonia, until the fifth episode of Succession Season 3, where can people find you? Um, people can find me, um, outside my house getting coffee and bagels, but not in an anti-Semitic way because I didn't even realize it could be anti-Semitic. Right. <laughs> Bagel um, pub is for everyone. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And on VF.com, of course. Uh, and I will be busy rehearsing the gritty reboot of the, uh, the musical Gypsy that I'm doing in which, uh, wrote Mama Rose sings Everything's Coming Up Fuck. <laughs> uh, which I think was my favorite line from this episode. Uh, and I'll be tweeting at Rylas and writing at VF.com. Uh, as ever, this episode was produced and edited by Dave Gonzalez. See you next week, guys. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.